given that there's going to be less work generally, if you're going to get that work, you'd better be the best person for that particular case. And you're not going to be the best person for that particular case unless you're specialized in that type of case. So I don't think anyone is likely to succeed in the future unless they've specialized. And even that's not necessarily any kind of guarantee. And certainly you better be lucky, as I was, in your area of specialization, because you may end up specializing in an area that becomes, well, that ceases to become as significant over time. You've got to be a bit inventive and creative and thoughtful and foresighted, and as well as lucky. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we bring you Howard Levin. From an early age, Howard's gift of disruption set him on a course to become one of Canada's leading employment lawyers. In a recent Global Mail profile of him, hiring Howard was compared to bringing a bazooka to a gunfight. He's someone who strikes fear in the heart of his opponents. His reputation as a fierce defender of his client's interests have brought him considerable success over the years. Howard's routinely asked to comment upon breaking employment law issues in national media. He's a frequent contributor to the National Post and hosts a talk show on News Talk 1010 CFRB. Howard acts for some of Canada's largest corporations leading negotiations on major collective bargaining agreements, speaking at employment law conferences across Canada, and being present any time a major employment issue arises in provincial or federal legislation. Join us as Howard discusses not only the issues surrounding employment law, but also how he got to where he is today on this episode of Of Counsel. Before we start today's podcast, I'm really excited to mention that we've now partnered with LexisNexis Canada as an exclusive sponsor to the show. The committed support of LexisNexis is allowing us not just to continue to bring you the caliber of guests we have so far, but push it even further by providing the means to travel and interview people outside of Toronto. In the coming months ahead, we have interviews scheduled for guests in Ottawa and Kingston with many more Canadian destinations on the horizon. All this wouldn't be possible without their support, and we're encouraged by their desire to share the vision we have at RoboShows to extend legal education and enhance transparency to the practice of law. On behalf of all of our listeners and the lawyers at RoboShows Criminal Defense Litigation, thank you. Like many of our professional listeners, our law firm relies heavily on Lexis Advanced Quick Law for its essential resources when conducting online legal research. It's hard to imagine how our firm could function or provide the quality of legal representation we do for our clients without Lexis Advanced Quick Law. 
In addition to their exhaustive database for every area of law, LexisNexis is also a leading legal publisher. Take some time to visit the LexisNexis online bookstore to browse recent publications by practice area or jurisdiction. If this podcast on employment law interests you, visit LexisNexis.ca backslash bookstore and refresh your bookshelf with the eighth edition of Your Employment Questions Answered, Federal and Provincial Guidance by Annelie Legault and Matthew Curtis. The text is written in a simple Q&A format to provide quick answers and employment standard issues covering each Canadian jurisdiction, including federal. Just released in July of 2018, this is essential reading for anyone wanting to stay on top of the developments and understanding employment law. Better still, for our listeners, LexisNexis is offering this book for free in a draw. Simply fill out an online entry form at LexisNexis.ca backslash employment book draw for a chance to win. Draw to be held on October 12th. Now, let's take you to the podcast with Howard Levitt. So today is a very special episode because I'm here with Howard Levitt, um, by many people's standards, the leading employment lawyer in Canada. Um, And Howard has a very interesting story. You grew up in Hamilton. And one of the things I read in the course of um, doing my research is you had a very early uh, start to your gift of disruption. Uh, <laughs> in grade 12, uh, I, there's, there's one story where you organized a walkout in support of, of uh, girls having the right to wear pants in school that drew a thousand students and, of course, your temporary expulsion. Um, you started, That's true. <laughs> you started practicing in labor law. I'm sure you continued that. So um, backing up a little bit before we get into the nitty-gritty of law, um, am I onto something in the sense that is this how it kind of got started for you? Oh, I think I got started probably before that. I was always very politically interested. And in Hamilton, politics is labor. There was a 48 Salco strike where people were throwing stones to the homes of their opponents. They were overturning railway cars that were trying to bring in provisions into the plant when it was on strike. It was very explosive. And so if you're interested in politics and you're from Hamilton, at least in those days, unions are politics. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, John Monroe, who ultimately I shared space with decades later, I went to one of his rallies or meetings and he was in just before the formal rally. And it was interesting who came in, the delegations coming to see him. The mob came in, which was big in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And, and people were open. There's the mob coming in right now. You have to stay out. And then the unions came in, and those were the power brokers in Hamilton. So it gave you a early interest in those issues. Right, yeah, it's a newsworthy right from the beginning. Very different time. It sounds very yes, different than, than very obviously different than what, what's happening Even now. in Hamilton. Did you think, though, despite this, you know, being right in Hamilton is probably the center point of labor law in the country at the time. Um, did you think there was a crossroads that could have happened, or it was always predestined for you that this is how it's going to be for you? I knew it was a strong likelihood, I thought, of psychiatry, which is a whole other set of interests. Mm -hmm. But when I got into U of T Law School and just got on the waiting list for Master Medical School, I thought, okay, this is a a message. So I went to law school and there it was. And then ended up becoming a very different personality than I would have been if I'd become a more sedentary, 
less active role of a psychiatrist where you sit there in an almost repository for information and, med- and it's more a meditative play than a than law, which is very active, more aggressive, more proactive. And that developed those aspects of my character. It seems you enjoy that. I do, but who knows? If I'd been a psychiatrist, I probably would have enjoyed a different set of modalities. And those characteristics I have now that are so prominent would never have been developed to the same extent anyway. Yeah, because I read another story that you uh, will purposely fast in the day just so that you can stay on edge and keep this type of of quick thinking. And Because I imagine your day-to-day is quite intense. Well, it's not as deliberate as that. The reality is some decades ago, I got a little bit of a pudge and I thought I have two choices. I could either exercise <laughs> or eat less. And that was an e- that was easy because I've always found exercise suicidally boring. So I just started eating less and now my body's used to it. And I find if I do eat, I get a bit sluggish. So now it is somewhat deliberative. You are a self-professed, uh, quote, terrible employee uh, in describing your time working for a firm in the mid-80s. And despite this, uh, did you learn any valuable lessons during your early years as a, a lawyer and even articling student that you've well, carried on? Well, I've been on? an employee in various points in my life, mm-hmm. summer jobs. Otherwise, I've always been a terrible employee, hard to really do exactly what I'm told and not want to do it my own way. And therefore, I've always had some conflict with any employer I've ever had. Have I learned lessons from? Sure. I've learned lessons in organization. Look, I always was a better business person than any of the firms I ever worked for. And I was always more profitable when I ran my own shop than any of the firms I ever worked for were. So I didn't learn things that way. But I learned, what I learned is it's important to be able to focus on your skill set, which is, of course, the practice of law and marketing in my case, those two, and not your weaknesses. And it taught me that it's important to take a gamble. And I took a gamble. The first time I had my own firm for 12 years, I tried to operate on the cheap, even though I didn't have to. We were quite profitable, but you always wonder if to be profitable tomorrow. It's that Hamilton boy coming out again. (laughs) And this time around, I said, okay, I'm going to have managing partners. I'm going to have office managers. I'm going to hire chartered accountants, now CGAs or CPAs to do that work. I'm going to spend the money required to deal with the issues that I'm not very good at. So I learned that. I learned the importance of that. I think they may have overdone it, but I certainly had underdone it. And now I don't. Yeah, and you can certainly see that in your practice. You obviously have a strong passion for marketing and branding and, and the type of presentation you have to the public. You're very active in, in the community. And I'm, I, I really want to return to that because I, I think that's the substance of, of uh, a lot of your success. But before we do, I think it's important for our listeners to understand a little bit about what exactly employment law is. Uh, so can you tell us in a very practical sense, what does that mean for people who are perhaps interested in it, law students or other lawyers who've never really got into the area? Well, employment law is the non-union sector, workplace relationships of all of its versatilities and types and varieties. And labor law is the unionized sector. I actually do both. I'm better known for employment law because I was one of the founders in this country of employment law very early on. Uh, I had my first job at Imperial Oil for a year, also a bad employee there, but it was only a year, thankfully. And then I joined a firm and started developing a practice. And after one year at that firm of 13 lawyers, I was bringing the second most new clients. But employment law was very, very new. So what I did at Imperial Oil was I wrote, I studied, I researched, and I realized there was an opportunity to this new field of law. So by the time I'd finished that year, 
the time I'd spent writing articles, researching, getting the idea to write a book. I was already very advanced in all of those respects. So to answer your question, work employment law, which wasn't really developed when I graduated in 79, is the law of the non-union workplace, as opposed to labor law, which I began practicing in, which was the law of the unionized workplace. But it was tough as a kid to have, and I was on the management side always in terms of labor law, to have corporations entrust someone in their 20s with their union affairs, which are vital to their business. The strike could take them out as a company entirely. So I saw an opportunity in employment law, which was getting going. It's really interesting when you describe this because, you know, uh, during my time in law school and certainly now people assume it as a, as a given that employment law is is just this major area of practice. But what you seem to be describing is an area of practice that had to essentially be born. And I imagine yes. in large part, even by your own book that kind of framed it and compartmentalized what exactly you were practicing at the time. Yes. Brown and Beatty was the Bible in labor law. And I thought I want to do exactly the same thing and write in the same style that Donald Brown and David Beatty had written Brown and Beatty. So it was every single case from coast to coast. I read from the BCLRs to the Newfoundland and PI reports, every single case ever written in the area of dismissal law. When I started practicing at Imperial Oil, which was my first year and even at Manning Bruce, employment law really was, you can't sue your employer because you'll never get another job. It'd be anathema. You'd be stigmatized so fundamentally, almost no one would sue their employer. But what they would do is they would make a deal with their employer. They'd work out the severance, and six months was the effective maximum of those days. And they'd have a lawyer write a demand letter and then issue a statement of claim only to settle immediately. And the statement of claim would make it non-taxable. No longer is the case. So it wasn't really a real lawsuit. It was a device to make the dismissal damages non-taxable. Right. Almost like in-house mediation that was assumed as part of the overall corporate governance. At least mediation, there are conflicting interests. <laughs> sure, there, yeah. the employee would not dare sue their employer in any real way. They just work out a deal to make the amount that the employer was prepared to give them anyway at most of the time non-taxable. And everybody was better off. So again, I'm taking this a little bit further because there's a lot of areas in law that, you know, right now, for example, there may be an area of law in cryptocurrency, for example, right? That may not go anywhere. But let's take another area of law, like um, something that's that's far more to do with uh, a contractual labor law, something around Uber, where looking at it uh People may say that that isn't even an area of law. So let's say that there was someone in law school or a young lawyer who's trying to carve out the same sort of success and compartmentalization that you have in employment. Um, what would you say to them and how to do it? Is, there, is, is it just about grit or is there a particular methodology that you think works? Well, I only know what I did and it worked, but understand I may have been lucky insofar as workplace law, which at that point seemed as, as unlikely to succeed as cryptocurrency may now ultimately did. It became massive over the decades since then. So who knows? 
But if you have a sense of potential in a field that interests you, what I did is I began writing articles, making speeches for interested groups. My first speech was to my local Jewish community center. I just put up a little sign. <laughs> Anybody wants to hear about their employment law rights in the workplace, they had 11 people show up. Mm-hmm. And that was the start. And I'd write articles. There was a human resource professional association, which generally, again, dealt with the unionized sector. I wrote articles for them, spoke to them. Somebody started a periodical, and I agreed to write for free, of course, the front page column every month. So human resource people began to know who I was. I got the idea of writing a book and pitched it to Kendall Law Book, who did publish Brown and Beatty. I got to know Stuart Morrison, who's unhappily passed away since then, and talked him into it. But it was a gamble at that time. Mm-hmm. There had been one book written that was by David Harris called Wrongful Dismissal. It was a small little tract. There wasn't much to it. And I wanted to write something that was more a more of a serious text. And then proceeded to do that. It took two and a half years of 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., Monday to Thursday, and then 12 hours on Saturday every week for two and a half years. No breaks, no vacations, no nothing. And then I went away for a week for vacation at a cottage I rented and spent that week editing the book and submitted it. But two and a half years where every day started at 9.30 and every day ended at 2 a.m. except Friday, which ended at 10 p.m., and 12 hours each on Saturday on the book and 12 hours on Sunday on the practice. But again, it was not just getting the book done. It was also doing as much work as I possibly could in the field so I would develop my practice and craft quickly because you don't want to go to a discovery and be beaten up, which, of course, you are if you haven't done one before. So the more discoveries I could do quickly over a short period of time, the more advanced I'd become relative to my peers and the less I'd have to ever worry about being embarrassed. Right. Well, in in, in illustrating this for us, it's clear that uh, I think something that's often lost on a lot of people is how much effort is required to get, obtain true mastery. But when that's obtained, obviously you get this level of comfort that you can then break the rules and even create the practice itself as you did in employment law. And when I would write some of my articles, it would say what the law was. Sometimes it was speculative. In other words, there were no cases. And I'll give an example of that, the law of references, as an example of qualified privilege. Um, I wrote an article that was published, I think it was in the Star at the time, saying here's the law of references. There never been a case on references. I just extrapolated from law of libel, law of contract, various areas of law and said, logically, this is what it will be. And since then, there have been court judgments that absolutely reflected what I had written well before the first case. Right. And you've got to be a bit bold, too. Because when you write an article like that for the public and you're wrong and someone relies on it, well, you'd be sued for negligence. Right, right. Never have been, but I'm just saying you've got to be a bit spunky. Mm -hmm. So uh, talking about the news, there's been a lot of news now. You're saying how employment law uh, wasn't even uh, a thing before, and now it seems like our headlines are inundated with changes in employment law uh, next to, uh, I mean, really, it could very well be the main headline of of law this year, in Ontario at least. So uh, with that, in November of 2017, there was a big change with the Employment Act. And the narrative of this change was almost entirely centered around minimum wage increases. But uh, as I understand it, the act was far more drastic than that. So what are some of the more significant changes that have happened and you think have been neglected in this narrative that's been presented? Well, more more paid and unpaid days off. Agency employees, part-time employees, casual employees being treated the same. 
visibility of salary disclosures. There's a lot of areas that overall tilted the balance in Ontario against employers and toward employees and created massive levels of internal bureaucracies and companies simply staying on top of these changes. And at the end of the day, I think Ford is going to repeal a lot of them right? because it got way ahead of themselves. And I, I also believe that a lot of these changes led to the unpopularity of the wind government. And a lot of my clients, for example, on minimum wage is the most visible, but it isn't just minimum wage. It's part-time employees suddenly having to be paid the same as full-time employees or casual employees or agency employees. Tremendous burdens on employers were barely making a go of it. I remember one client calling me and saying, I have several nursing homes. Here's one. It's full, but I'm not making a penny. And now with minimum wage going up, let alone these other changes, I will be losing money. I'm not prepared to lose money. Is there anything you can do to lobby? And I said, I don't think I have a lot of influence with the government, so probably not. Mm -hmm. But it was putting a lot of Canadians out of business and and a lot of, therefore, Canadians out of Ontarians specifically out of a job, which is why as soon as minimum wage and a lot of these other changes were introduced, we had the greatest increase in unemployment, I don't know, maybe ever in one month. Yeah, I think it was just Friday that passed. There was a Financial Post article reporting that Ontario had lost uh, 80,100 jobs in August, um, all part-time, the biggest decline since 2009. So uh, do you think that this is all part and parcel to what's happening? August of this year? Yes. I hadn't heard that, but I'm thinking of the January right after the law was passed. It was at that point the biggest loss ever. So here was another terrible month. And it's worse than that, actually. Because what has been happening, if you look at the real underlying employment numbers, is that it's offset by gains, but the gains have been in marginal, part-time, low-paid jobs, and the losses have been more permanent, full-time, higher-paid jobs. So the numbers you've given, desultory as they are, disguise a much more egregious problem for our economy. Hmm. Do you see, and you think that this may come through the form of legislative change uh, to save businesses who are struggling, like you say? Well, I hope so. I think so. That's what Ford was elected to do in part. So obviously there's a lot of issues in employment law. We've touched on a few of them, but um, is there one issue in particular that's pressing that you have been overwhelmed with lately? I'm thinking in particular of the issue of, of Me Too and what that has come and sexual harassment in the workplace. You took it out of my mouth, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me about that, how that's impacted your practice lately? We've seen several waves. The first wave was Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, and that created the lexicon of sexual harassment in the consciousness of Canadians and, of course, Americans as well. And that was an uptick because I've been practicing long enough to see these various upticks over time. The second one was Gomeshi, which was ahead of Me Too. So we had our Me Too moment really a year or a half or so ahead of the Americans. Me Too just solidified it because instead of just being written about in Canadian newspapers as Gomeshi was, it was written about, it was ubiquitous in all forms of media. And all of a sudden, Canadian figures beyond just Gomeshi were being struck with scandal. And therefore, everybody began thinking about their past. Women were thinking, well, this happened to me in 1993. Maybe I'll talk about it now. And men were thinking, I did this in 1993. Or 
I did something that might be ambiguously construed that way in 1993. God, I hope it won't be retroactively construed as harassment when I think it was consensual at the time, because, of course, the boundaries between consent is sometimes murky. Particularly in an employment context as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people's perceptions vary. And, you know, I've been talking about office Christmas parties forever, and the problem there is invariably alcohol, once, and this is related but unrelated at the same time, when a person's courage to ask someone out is fueled by alcohol and a woman's perception is also impacted by alcohol and it's a dangerous toxic mix that leads to sexual harassment allegations for years coming out of office Christmas parties. Well, anyway, so somebody remembers back to an old office Christmas party where everyone was fueled with alcohol, much more so than today where people are more sober at holiday parties and office parties generally, and they may have different, legitimately different perceptions or different recollections. And then there's always, in addition to legitimate claims, there's always revenge claims. Can you tell me what you mean by something you've described as the complicity machine in the context of this Me Too movement? Uh, that's not my expression. That's I think, the New York Times expression. I call it the enablers. Okay. And what does that mean? It's the same thing. It's, I think... There's going to be a wave of lawsuits. I predicted it a year ago. It hasn't happened yet. We'll see because it's so obvious, a little bit like I predicted mm-hmm. and pre-told what would happen with reference law. I'm suggesting this will happen. That let's take a Weinstein, for example, but of course, I'm just using him because he's the most prominent example. But this, of course, is reflected across our corporate universe. And... Weinstein had a number of payoffs along the way of various women, settlements. Who was involved in the settlements? Well, corporate counsel was, head of human resources was, maybe some VPs were. I'm talking about not just Weinstein, obviously, but everyone involved. And so what happened when they did this? Certainly, if not the first time, but the second time, they were aware Weinstein and others had this propensity. So some new woman comes and works for Weinstein in a position that's that's well that's analogous to the positions that people have had who were sexually harassed before and they don't warn them not to be alone with Weinstein they don't warn them that this could happen I think that's negligent Mm -hmm. I think if then Weinstein does it again it's not really Weinstein and Vicariously's employer that can be sued it's all the individuals who should have and failed to warn them that this might happen. And by not warning them, they were then subject to the predations of whoever the sexual harasser was. And we've not seen any lawsuits like that yet. But if someone came to me with those circumstances, I wouldn't just be suing the uh, aggressor and the vicariousy's employer. I'd be suing all the enablers. Right. The whole complicity machine. Yeah. Right. Uh, on the flip side of this, and, and this is what we were uh, talking about just a little bit earlier, should uh, employers be concerned of false allegations? Because perhaps not in the complicity side of things, but what about employers who start the machine of, of dismissal and, and go through it without a very thorough investigation, and it turns out the allegations were made for ulterior motives or just completely false? Well, that's the reason you want to have a good, first of all, a good hard look rather than assuming things. And I think that happened very well with TV Ontario and Stephen Pakett. First of all, he wasn't suspended during the investigation. Almost everyone else has been because they took a hard look at the credibility of him versus Sarah Thompson, decided 
he's probably telling the truth and she's probably not. And then they investigated and hopefully they did it objectively. But in any event, they didn't jump to any conclusions, whereas employers are so quick to try and protect their brand by any allegation against someone that might therefore taint the brand, they remove them quickly. And I can tell you that I've seldom seen someone who's been suspended pending investigation who's ever returned to the employer, regardless of the outcome of the investigation. Right, especially from a branding point of view, when you're dealing with big companies on the cost-benefit analysis, it seems like it makes a lot more sense, even if you have to pay out the person, to just terminate them and move on. Right. So you hope that employers are going to take a hard look and not be too unfair to people who are potentially unjustly accused and interview people on both sides. Now, of course, much of the time, there aren't any other witnesses and there isn't a suggestion it's happened before. But the fact it's never happened before itself is some sort of evidence that it might not have happened here. It's not obviously dispositive, but it's un- you can't be unfair to people on either side of the equation. And we just look at, for example, Stephen Galloway, who had a lot of publicity around his case recently. First of all, he's accused by someone, and he says, we had a two-year relationship. I didn't rape her at this period of time, or whatever the allegation was. It was it was assault at the very least, if it wasn't rape. Right. And it turns out from the text messages and emails they ultimately uncover that they did have a relationship for two years after this supposedly occurred. And then some other woman comes forward. I can't recall her name. Rooney, I think her name might have been. And she said, well, I have, I think, 13 witnesses who will say that he assaulted them. And she ends up not coming up with any at all. And meanwhile, he's railroaded through a process, becomes suicidal, loses his job, and he's, I think he might be driving Uber right now. Right. From a very prestigious position at UBC before that as head of, I think, the Department of Communications. I think that's the name of his of his department. In any event, for a prestigious job, high-profile Canadian author, and then the people who supported him, like Margaret Atwood, this doyen of Canadian feminism, gets viciously attacked by the Twitter mob for supporting Galloway, who ultimately is found to be innocent, at least of these allegations. Looking at something like that, uh, what would be someone like Stephen Galloway's recourse? Is it just a lawsuit and hope for the best? And- well, he could have sued her, except it's well past the limitation period, and he was reeling from the attacks and was in no psychological position to start a lawsuit. And, or he can attempt to get his job back through his union because he was a faculty member at UBC and therefore was unionized. Therefore, he does not have the right to sue. And at the end of the day, the union chose not to take his case through to arbitration on the discharge for its reasons and took his case for privacy violations for which I think he was awarded 167000 by the arbitrator. Do you think that as a result of cases like this and some others that you're going to see um, the accused people acting more preemptively and filing lawsuits sooner than they would otherwise because of the limitation periods? And- well, what's happening right now, as you might know, I've been involved in a lot of the free speech issues. Right. And there's a professor, Ibrahim, at McGill University. He is suing his accusers. Hmm. And actually he says the accusers are anonymous. So I'm believe it is X and suing that person without even having, as I understand, at least in one person, concrete evidence is even the person he's suing. Mm-hmm. Because anonymous 
leaflets left everywhere is difficult to sue someone for. So what are some of the, um, moving to a different topic, what are some of the major misconceptions that people have about employment law and employment rights? You know, it, it's it's often, people have no idea until they talk to someone like you what their rights are, or even employers for that matter, often run roughshod until a problem happens. So are there major issues that you think you would advise? Well, there's for? different, of course, different issues that lawyers, views that lawyers might have versus the non-lawyers. So I'm just talking about non-lawyers. They think it's a month prior of service or a week per year of service. There are cases where employees have worked two weeks and got a year's pay or have worked 35 years and got nine months pay. Mm. It's not a month per year of service. There's no formula based on length of service. People think that cause is just good reason and redundancy does not lead to wrongful dismissal damage. I'm talking again about lay people, not lawyers. They don't understand the concept of frustration because there's an interesting juxtaposition between somebody who is disabled and therefore must be accommodated and somebody who's and therefore gets more rights at law versus someone who is so disabled it's not reasonably foreseeable to return to work who have no rights at law because the employment's frustrated and all they're going to get is employment standards minimum people don't understand the law of wrongful resignation the fact you have to give reasonable notice to your employer when you leave and you can be sued for damages if you don't and reasonable notice is not two weeks it's generally measured in months so those are some of the popular misconceptions, but there's hundreds of them. Those Hmm. are the ones I run into most, probably most frequently. Hmm. Interesting. So ultimately, make sure you speak to a lawyer. (laughs) Sure. Or or if you're in terms of the wrongful resignation, talk to your employer. I'm going to leave. How much time do you want? And they may say, if you're going to leave, leave now. Right. So even as a lawyer, I never, it never even crossed my mind that there was a, 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 an inverse to that in the sense that obviously the employer has to give reasonable notice. There's actually one case involving a legal secretary being sued for wrongful resignation. I guess the lawyer didn't have a lot of business. So he needed, had lots of spare time, sued a secretary for wrongful resignation. He won his case in terms of her being entitled to notice, but he ultimately lost his case because the court found he had no damages. Right. He saved her salary. There was no offsetting <laughs> loss. So moving to the business side, because uh, you are someone who has um, really excelled in this particular area, uh, especially as it relates to business acumen, marketing. Uh, in 85, you started your own firm, uh, Levin and Associates, with considerable success uh, in representing high-profile groundbreaking cases. But then, uh, despite this, you ended up uh, moving over to Lang Mishner on Bay Street. Um, why was that initial transition? Because we know now, obviously, you have um, Levitt LLP and your success is now. But was there something that decided to move you to Bay Street? Was it just an experiential thing? Or? Well, I was doing very well financially. Mm-hmm. I remember having lunch with Gloria Epstein, Court of Appeal judge now, and then a lawyer. And she and I were the only two lawyers in our class at U of T Law School, graduating in 77, who'd started our own firms. And our firms were roughly the same size. And she was complaining to me that her secretaries made more money than she did. And I said, boy, I make more money than every lawyer and every secretary in my firm put together. I had a much better business model, obviously. Now, I, don't, I can't say that today because I... But here's the point back then. It wasn't really a matter of money. Small firms could not attract the best lawyers, generally speaking. Everybody wanted to work in the big firm. It's not like that today. It was back like that then. So I was not getting the best lawyers, and therefore there were constant problems caused by my lawyers making mistakes right. and my suddenly having to go in to salvage it, or they'd get lawsuit complaints about something they had done or said from angry clients, and usually it was just 
they billed me too much and the client would get angry and suddenly I'd be in the middle of this. And it was just too stressful. Right. So I joined Langs and by the time I left Langs, that had changed. First of all, I understood the importance of paying for what I needed and pay better than everybody else in my field now, not just for lawyers, but at all levels in this firm. And also the shift had occurred that people were leaving big firms and understanding the advantages of small firms and particularly boutiques and specialty shops. So it, I was ready to leave at that point. And when they joined McMillan, McMillan was not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I wasn't theirs. <laughs> so you're someone who seems to have a very clear understanding of the necessity of business acumen in the practice of law. And I think this is something that's, uh, from my perspective, very far and few between. There's this idea that if I do great in law school, if I get good grades, and I just keep practicing in the same manner, I'm going to be a successful business person as well. Um, where did your business acumen come from? Is it from, in part, Bay Street, or is it just something that you've always had uh, and evolved? No, as I talked about with my Gloria Epstein lunch story, I had it before Bay Street. I don't really know. My father was a merchant. He had a scrap metal company in Hamilton, so maybe there's a little bit from that. I don't know. It just something I instinctively understood. And this was not simply a profession. It's my job. It's all of our jobs. And you want to make as much money as you can in your job, obviously ethically and reasonably, and in a way that's not exploitative of anyone else, but you want to do well. So obviously I create a business model that allows for financial success to the extent that I can. Mm-hmm. And as I've got more mature and had more experience, I've understood more about that incrementally over the years. Is there a fundamental lesson or perspective that you would say to, let's say, a first-year lawyer deciding, I'm going to start my own practice, I'm a, I'm a good lawyer, I'm smart, I know what I'm doing, but uh, what, what else do they need to know to have a successful practice in five years from that point? Well, first of all, how to get and keep clients. Yeah. You can be a great lawyer, but not very good with clients. There's some very good lawyers who, are, who simply don't have very many clients. There's some very poor lawyers have far more clients than they deserve and we all know those people so don't go out on your own unless you're confident they either have a network or know how to create the network because otherwise you'll be very unsuccessful and then I would look at every check every month and still do and look at whether or not that check was well spent and whether there's other expenses I should be making and another question I have, and this is something you mentioned at the, the beginning of this interview, um, talking about your firm now and the growth and, and hiring not just lawyers, but good people on the business infrastructure side of things. Is that something that you now see essential to uh, a larger or mid-sized firm in, in the sense that this is how you scale upwards? How critical do you see those people now as part of your practice? Absolutely critical. It's I could not have continued in my firm before I joined Langs because of the absence of that kind of infrastructure. You can't be competent as a lawyer if you're under huge stress. And I was getting to that point before I joined Langs that all we'd become big enough at that point, we're up to eight lawyers and had a bookkeeper and not much else in terms of infrastructure and receptionist and secretaries. And there, he was a junior bookkeeper at that, and there was nothing but problems and complaints. Mm-hmm. And the lawyers weren't 
some of them were very good, some of them weren't. So at the end of the day, I was, everybody's problem was mine. I'm sure you find this. You yourself describe yourself as a taskmaster and someone that, you know, likes to have control of your business for obvious reasons. To, to a point. You've yeah. You've got to delegate and be comfortable with that. And that's what I'm asking because a lot of lawyers, that, as I see it, is often their problem, is this inability to let go of control of any aspect of a file. And in many ways, it's a good thing, especially as a litigator. But at some point, you have to let go. So how is that something that you've had or something that you had to learn to train yourself to delegate a bit more? I've never had a problem with delegating files to lawyers. Everybody's always run their own files. If anything, it's the opposite. I, I cannot tell you what files other people here are working on in the main. They, I only know if they ask me or if there's an issue from a client. And I hope they ask me if there's an issue. But generally, I, you can't have a firm of this size, 13 lawyers, without, without delegating virtually everything. So I'm responsible for my files, and other lawyers are responsible for their files, and the twain seldom meets unless they ask. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you're someone who has uh, a very large presence uh, in Canadian law, um, and I imagine that translates into the courtroom. Do you find that it ever acts as a bit of a disadvantage where you almost just want to go in there and be a little bit more low-key and just try and settle things in a routine file? Uh, in which case, do you, do you try and hand that off to a different lawyer or... Sometimes I get a sense that the opponent is trying to make their name through doing well in a case against me and therefore is putting vastly too much energy into the case for the value of the case and therefore requiring me to put more energy than I should. And if I can, at that point, I take that away from them by putting someone else in. And I've got a lot of very senior lawyers here. And then all of a sudden they become sensible. Sometimes I can't do that or sometimes the case is too important or sometimes I... The client insists on my doing it, but that happens sometimes, and that's my approach when that occurs. This touches upon an interesting aspect of advocacy and something I think more senior lawyers struggle with, and that is what you're describing there is a very sophisticated level of advocacy, something that's in subtext that really the only person that understands what you're doing is you. How do you translate that to a client? And, and I use that as one of probably 50 things that are going on in any particular file, that if you took the time to explain to a client what your mind is doing, it would take, you know, 40 hours. Uh, how do you manage to do that, but at the same time ensure that the client still trusts you and that they have enough information to trust you? Or does that just at this point in your career come naturally? Well, it does come naturally, but a lot of my clients have worked with me for a very long time. So they understand either enough to trust me or they understand what I'm likely doing. And I think most things can be explained simply. Mm-hmm. And I have, as you know, from my radio show and my post column, the ability to explain things very simply. Mm-hmm. So I do. So I want to talk about that. You on uh, It's AM 1010, I think it is, Employment Tips, every Sunday. Yes. This is a very popular weekly show. I think it's on from one to two. Tell me about how this show and how it came to be. Well, there was a show by a competitive law firm on 640. And I thought, that's a good idea. Why don't I do that? I had contacts at news. Actually, I had contacts at 640. Probably could have taken the show because I act for... 640, I act for Chorus nationally, whereas I don't act for Bell Media, which is where New Talk 1010 is housed. But I act for Rogers, I act for Chorus, so I act for much of Canada's radio networks. In any event, I decided in Toronto Marketplace, the best 
station for me was 1010 in terms of not merely numbers, but the right listeners. So I knew some people there and approached some people there, and they thought it was a good idea too. What do you get from it now? I mean, not just obviously in clients who are going to come to you and hear you on the radio, but do you uh, do you get a sense that, of... That's not unimportant. Right. Yeah, sure, it isn't. But do you think that um, it also has uh, benefits in the sense that, I mean, it's a form of giving back to the public. You're offering free information uh, and tips for people to get help. Uh, is it something that you look forward to every Sunday? I do. I enjoy it. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. But I've been doing that for decades. I've been, I do a lot of media and I've often been on radio doing an employment law hour with not formally like this, but as a special guest for an hour on various talk, with various talk show hosts and various stations across Canada for decades now. I've always enjoyed it, so I thought I'll do it. It also flows a little bit from the National Post column, mm-hmm. which is also intended to give legal information accessibly to the public. One thing I've noticed, um, Howard, is in the course of giving back to the public this way, you're very good from what I see in compartmentalizing the type of information relative to the audience and generally just branding in general. So, for example, your article to the Financial Post may be very different than what your conversation may be in in 1010. And that may just be a product of the people that call in. But notwithstanding, you seem to have a very good sense of uh, branding and hyper-specialization. And the reason I, I, it's sort of a long setup to an issue that I see with a lot of younger lawyers is the inability to commit to one area of law. They'll say things like, I practice real estate and a little bit of business, a little bit of that. So you know firsthand better than anyone, what are the benefits of hyper-specializing and just saying, I am going to be a lawyer for X? First of all, I don't think you have a choice. If you're going to be successful, you have to specialize. And I am very concerned for lawyers, younger lawyers today. I think there's going to be very few that are successful, however long the runway is, because I don't believe law will be as remunerative a profession in 20 years or even 10 years as it is today. I don't think there will, the average relative income will be as high in 10 years as today, in 20 years, even less so. You see law schools in the States particularly emptying and lower quality applicants. And that's a precursor to what is going to happen here. It's We're becoming more commoditized. Artificial intelligence is doing much of the task that we used to do. There's too many lawyers for the amount of work. Our economy generally has been hollowed out. If you look at the number of Canadian corporations of significant size when I was a youngster, when I was a young lawyer, there are many, many, many of them. And one after the other, I've seen them leave, be bought out, and head offices moved elsewhere. Well, that directly impacts on the amount of legal work, not just corporate commercial work and litigation work, but all kinds of legal work. If the centers of gravity aren't here, that's what creates legal work. So given that there's going to be less work generally, If you're going to get that work, you'd better be the best person for that particular case. And you're not going to be the best person for that particular case unless you're specialized in that type of case. So I don't think anyone is likely to succeed in the future unless they've specialized. And even that's not necessarily any kind of guarantee. And certainly you better be lucky as I was in your area of specialization because you may end up specializing in an area that becomes well, that ceases to become as significant over time. 
you've got to be a bit inventive and creative and thoughtful and foresighted as well as lucky. I, I happen to be interested in my area and I went into employment law. I was alluding to it earlier. I went into employment law because I was having trouble as a young lawyer getting labor law work because who was going to entrust their union needs to a kid? Right. So this employment law thing was beginning to evolve. So I jumped into that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people share your concern. Obviously, um, people graduating law school now, I think they see this in many ways. And they're also uh, graduating with massive amounts of debt. And uh, there certainly seems to be a bit of a crisis coming. But I ask you a question about that generation. Do you think that there's a conflict uh, as people come out of law school and jumping into the law profession, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is it a lot more stark in, in the sense of expectations of leaving law school to what is actually the reality of the practice of law than it was when you graduated? Well, I suspect that's the case, that right now there isn't the job opportunities there were when I graduated. Although, I, as I recall, I graduated a bad year where not many people were hired back, but that's just year by year. Overall, the trend was high. Maybe this year is a good year. I can't, I don't know. I'm not close enough to it to know that. Mm -hmm. But overall, the trend line is dramatically downward. Mm -hmm. Have you had to um, learn to adapt to different uh, approaches in the way that younger lawyers practice law and perhaps even when they want to practice law, their schedules? Is it, it as I understand, it seems to be very different than, you know, a 60-hour straight work week. Um, not to say it's any less productive, it's just very different. And is that something your practice has had to adapt First to? of all, it is less productive. Yeah. Of course it's less productive. If you put in 60 hours, you're going to be more productive than you put in 40 hours. By definition, you can argue whether you're as productive any given hour, but that's a function of your stamina and your commitment and various other factors. I think if you don't put in the hours, you're going to be, you're going to not going to develop your skills, and therefore you're going to be less productive in any given hour, rather than the converse. Mm. The lawyer here who builds the most and is hardest working is a millennial, and at the end of the day, if you don't work hard, you're not going to survive here. And I try and be very straightforward with people when they come here that we do expect hard work, not necessarily the hours I put in when I was young, but hard work. And I think the big firms still require that, although less and less. Is our lawyers prepared to provide that? Well, some are and some aren't. But you wouldn't think that if you realize how tough it is to get ahead today as a young graduate, you should owe it to yourself and your future family to put in those hours. So another uh, area of, I've been asking some of our guests lately, particularly guests like you who are prominent, but also polarizing figures, um, because what seems to happen with a lot of people in law, initially it was just kind of the criminal defense lawyers who were the scum of society like me, but now it's moving into other areas. And I know you in particular in dealing with employment law, you're often um, the target of name calling, insults, uh, even threats at time. And that now is even amplified further on social media uh, to the point that I think many people consider it uh, unbearable. So how do you deal with this sort of uh, vitriol uh, as a professional? Do you just you know let it go? And, and, and if you do, what would you say to younger lawyers who may be having a harder time doing so? Well, I don't have a hard time doing so. Yeah. I view it as a bit of a compliment. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it means you're accomplishing something that people are reacting strongly. So I 
even the death threats you alluded to, I've not taken them very seriously. Right, right. Do you think it's a necessary part of your practice that it just is going to come with the territory? Well, I take tough positions, and the other side, therefore, is personally very disadvantaged and mm-hmm. therefore take it very personally. And one of my death threats this year um, came from a boyfriend of a woman who I humiliated in a human rights hearing in Western Canada. And another one came from someone who I didn't even recall him, but I got a call from the police telling me about this death threat on social media from someone who I really just couldn't recall. I do too many cases a year. Mm-hmm. But apparently he came on the losing end of a particular case and took it personally and has some psychiatric issues. So I then had to make the decision, do I have the police arrest him or let him go? And I talked to the officer and we decided, based on the information the officer had, who had spoken to his mother, his quite elderly mother, that he had some psychiatric issues and was likely to blow hot and cold and then move on to something else. And I did not want to make myself the center of his attention by having him arrested or even spoken to. So I just let it go. Do you see social media um, being a topic um, within a lot of your practice these days? Like what people will say something about their employers. Is that becoming a real risky area for people now? Are people getting fired for yeah. slandering their employers on social media? Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people assume that because it's they're just their friends that maybe they're immunized from it. But uh, is that... I think they used to think that. I think people... Well, it's my sense. I think people understand that because employers have generally social media policies and therefore at least larger ones do and medium-sized ones do and therefore employees are increasingly aware of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, younger employees who live and breathe the social media world... They think about it all the time. They understand that slandering someone on social media, including being a slander themselves, has impact, and therefore it's cognitively obvious to them that slandering their employer is likely to come to their employer's attention and is going to be disciplinable. So in in dealing with the media properly, you're someone who is often before the media, um, dealing with very high-profile cases. You have to be very careful with what you say when you're representing clients. Do you have any advice for younger lawyers who happen to get a high-profile case on their desk and they don't really know how to approach it? Well, first of all, my motto has always been to speak to the media. Don't hide from the media. Take that opportunity to advance your client's case. And then have, maybe I never had it, but I've developed it over time, the skills to deal with social media. Maybe they should get some media training if, they, if they're in a position where they're likely to have lots of contact with the media. Get some training. Mm-hmm. So I've had lawyers here who I've paid for some training for them and they've become much better as a result of it. Speaking of media, in July 2013, after a torrential downpour, uh, you found yourself, uh, like many Torontonians that day, in a submerged vehicle uh, down on Simcoe, Lower Simcoe. But unlike others, you had to be in an important hearing in Ottawa, and you were driving a $200,000 Ferrari. So instead of canceling the meeting and fretting over your ruined Ferrari um, uh, that was incapable of going anywhere, you got on a flight, the last seat, in fact, to Ottawa, and headed Second off. Second airport I first went to. Uh, island airport and it was closed down too so then i had to get then i immediately phoned and got the last seat of the night out of pearson but ended up leaving at 3 a.m so i didn't have much sleep that night and i had to 
douse my suit <laughs> in the shower because I was walking through raw sewage getting out of the Ferrari. It wasn't rain. It was raw sewage that was spouting as somehow the storm let out geysers of raw sewage in that location. So is that what it takes to be, you know, I, I put this in the context that you said uh, in, in response to this question elsewhere, you said that this is what I would expect any of our employees. You kind of brushed it off. And obviously not literally, but in the sense that the amount of dedication required to win these cases, um, what lesson did you take from that or even try and pass on to your other associates? Well, it was obvious to me. It just was, I didn't even think twice. The Ferrari wasn't going anywhere. It was done. I called the dealership. They said, it's it's finished. So what's the point? I had a hearing to get to, and I was going to get there. Why? It would just add calamity to calamity if I hadn't gone to the, if I hadn't gone to the hearing. So you move ahead. And why would I upset the client and let them down? Why would I? There, there seemed no good reason not to do what I did. It seemed the most obvious thing in the world. I didn't think twice about it. So what does a great day look like to you, Howard? Oh, a great day is getting a great cost examination complete that effectively finishes the case and some time with my family at the end of it. Or maybe some drinks with the group here and then my family at the end of it. That's a great day. What about the days, you know, we all have this as litigators that that just really don't go well, that you feel that an unjust result was reached or whatever. And how do you move on? Do you have a way to compartmentalize this? Do you have something that you do for your own stress management in life that helps you? No, not really. It's I suffer the same as, as all of us in that respect. I just have enough going on right. that it doesn't take long before I'm out of that modality because things are going well and something else. And what I do is I eat myself alive if things aren't going well. I don't sleep. I hyper-focus. I just... And that's why at the end of the day, not many things don't end up going well, or they may seem to be not going well along the way. Mm-hmm. I just work in them and work in them and work in them. So momentum. <laughs> well, more hyper-focus mm-hmm. and rethinking and rethinking and rethinking doesn't do much for my insomnia, but does a lot for turning it around. Is there... Um principle that you live by in advocacy and the way I often phrase it to our guests is if there was an inscription on your desk to read as you're about to make an argument or going to court is there is there one pithy quote that you would say guides you judges are people too Mm. they're going to react the same complexion of emotions that you are that your clients are that everyone is and steer it toward how they are going to react emotionally as well as intellectually I want to talk to you about um, the story of one client that you reported in the Globe and Mail uh, that sort of highlights one aspect of your advocacy quite well. And this aspect centered around a strategy, and that strategy is demoralizing your opponent, and the opponent obviously being the litigator on the other side, a professional, someone who should be used to this. And what you say is you you bring out um, the villainy of the opponent, get them totally discombobulated psychologically so that he thinks about his case and will vomit. While clearly effective, uh, I'm sure, this hinges upon a psychology of dominance, bullying, and maybe even exploitation of other lawyers' insecurities and lack of mastery like yourself. Um, do you ever feel that perhaps you're pushing it too far, that, that you're being too villainous well first of all that comment really was devote i think it may have been 
uh, written that way in the magazine you're thinking about, in the ROB magazine, but I, it was really talking about their client more than the lawyer. Mm. I want the client to realize that they're doomed and to want to get out of the case. So when it comes to a settlement or just dropping the case, they'll take little if they're, or if the other way around, depending on what side they're on. Right. Um, or that they'll drop the case entirely. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much focused on the lawyer as on their client. But to answer your question, no, clients are paying me a high hourly rate to win. It's not my job to go easy on someone because they're less skilled. Right. In fact, it's my job to use my greater skill to my, the greatest advantage. And if a client ever thought I was doing less, they should not be hiring me. Do you think that this form of advocacy is uniquely optimized within the employment context, or do you think it... No, I think it's... Well, I think it's equally true of any form of litigation mm-hmm. in terms of its effectiveness. So have you ever met your match, someone who's equally... <laughs> I don't think I have one in the employment bar. No. I think to the extent I have matches, they'd be some very top civil litigators. Mm-hmm. In some sense, when these tactics um, are employed, do you not feel that perhaps you're being the archetype of the converse in the sense that, you know, it seems like to me you started off uh, being interested in employment law because of, maybe I'm assuming too much, but maybe because you saw the bullying of employers that were going on in Hamilton uh, and there's a sense of injustice there. Do you ever think that maybe I'm on the other side of things now and have existential moments? No. 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 Um, look, I am, I think I'm on the side of the angels. I'm acting for Lindsay Shepard pro bono. I'm acting for Dr. Peterson against the bullies in the University of Bullies of Political Correctness. I can't think right now of a case I'm involved in in which I believe that my client's behavior is reprehensible in any way. Mm-hmm. So, who are your heroes of litigation? Who do you look up to, um, people who've maybe practiced still or have stopped practicing that you try and maybe not emulate, but try and aspire towards? When I articled at McCarthy's in the 70s, in the late 70s, I spent four months day in, day out with John J. Robinette. Mm. And it's sad that most listeners won't know who I'm talking about. But you, I lit up and you knew exactly what I was talking about. I mean, generally viewed as the top lawyer of the 20th century in Canada. So I was lucky enough to have those four months. And Doug Laylaw was there at the time, was a great cross-examiner. But I've operated pretty independently pretty early. So I've not, and because I've been in employment law, I haven't mixed much with the great civil litigators of our day. Mm-hmm. So my ex- exposure to them, and of course, when I was with Robert N, I was seeing all of the great litigators of those days, but it was a different time. I don't know that the litigators of today are as good as the ones then. Maybe criminal law is different because then you're on your feet all the time. Now, cases are so complex that you'll have weeks of discovery, potentially, even though this seven hours, but you have exceptions for complex cases. And there's mediations, and there's pretrials, and there's so many opportunities to resolve cases. A, you're not in court as often in civil litigation as you were, as the laid laws and Robinettes were, which was basically every day. 
and as I was basically every day early in my practice, if you include examination for discovery. Secondly, in those days, there's a few number of really good lawyers, and there are a few number of lawyers in litigation generally. Now, there are so many. You don't run into the same people very often. Maybe you do in the commercial list, which I seldom deal with, but generally you don't. So therefore, A, people don't have the opportunity to hone their craft to the extent they did then. And B, there are so many, it's hard to identify who the really good lawyers are. And if you ask around about who the really good lawyers are, most people will give names in the civil litigation bar. People have been around for decades. And there may be other people who are just as good, who are younger, but they haven't run into the other people. They haven't encountered the other lawyers as frequently enough for the word to travel. There's more judges, there's more lawyers. It's hard for everyone to understand that Mr. X or Mrs. X or Ms. X are great lawyers because no one's had the same amount of exposure to them that a judge, that any judge would have to any given lawyer when I began practicing in the late 70s. Right. You know, and this is a shortfall that I, I've, uh, it's bothered me for some time because it also affects the clients because how do clients then know who to retain when there's no objective evaluation. I mean, 20 years ago, obviously, uh, people would know who certain lawyers were, and there was comfort in the reputations they earned, but now there's sure. a lot of noise. Everybody knew who John J. Robinette was, right. Doug Laylaw, and George Finlayson, and Williston, and Jake Howard, and Ian Scott, and, you know, if I keep Pierre Genet, I'm thinking of the lawyers that I, would, that I actually saw when I was articling that year on the various cases that Mr. Robinette took me on, those three cases, it was almost the same people every time. They were the greats, John Sapinka, they were the greats of their day. And now, who are the greats of our day? I don't know who they are. Yeah, they're certainly out there, but it's hard to know. Maybe they're not as good as those people were because they're not getting as much trial experience as they did back then because the nature of litigation's changed so fundamentally. Right, very true. Certainly the... um it seems like the psychology of litigation and persuasion has been in decline, and it's more to do with grinding out discoveries and and through paper. Right. In closing up our, our uh, interview, uh, I have a question that I ask everyone, and that is if there was a one Supreme Court of Canada case that you could reverse, can you think of one that you've just has always bothered you that really needs some, or at least a reevaluation? No, because... We've only had not quite 20 cases in employment law before the Supreme Court of Canada. They've generally been formational, foundational cases, setting up basic principles. And I think they've set them out well, but they're not, none of them are on particularly, in my view, contentious issues. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's like saying, I want to reverse Headley Byrne or Hadley and Baxendale. They're foundational principle cases. That's the ones we've had in our field. I have one that I've applied for leave, which I think is very important. And it's a Nova Scotia Court of Appeal case that was a two-to-one loss for my clients. So they came to me to do the Supreme Court of Canada leave application. And there's two aspects of it. Briefly, the employee, according to everyone, even the majority decision at the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, was treated ruthlessly, treacherously, in a manner that's almost evil through the course of his employment. And finally, he just couldn't take it anymore and quit. 
And if he had worked another during the period of notice, and everyone admitted, all the courts said he was constructively dismissed, but there were, he would have received, if he worked through the period of notice, a certain, I'll call it a bonus for the purpose of this discussion, that would have netted him over a million dollars. And he wasn't someone who made that much money, so that was the big prize. And this bonus was awarded to induce people to stay and to work hard. And it succeeded, but he couldn't take it anymore, and everyone admitted he couldn't take it anymore and shouldn't have put up with it. When he was lied and cheated, etc., he had to leave. But the contract around that bonus was that if he wasn't there at the time it was awarded, he didn't get it. And it was worded pretty clearly. And there's a whole series of cases from coast to coast on this subject, usually the stock option cases. And generally, in most provinces, Alberta, Ontario, you don't get it if the contract says you don't get it. In BC, it's a bit of a different view. If you would have got it during the period of notice, you get it. And you can't, because you're not suing for the bonus, you're suing for your losses for not working the period of notice. So whatever the contract wording is for the bonus, it doesn't really matter because part of your loss is the value of the bonus. So the Court of Appeal, the trial judge went his way. The Court of Appeal 2 to 1 went against him. And that's being heard. And there's... The court decided there's no punitive damages in the case for various reasons. So if there's a right, what's the remedy? There's no remedy, according to the Court of Appeal. So there's two issues. First of all, whether or not these contracts about remuneration condiments will hold up, and that's been a huge source of litigation across the country over the last few years. It's not gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. In fact, it's the case I wanted to take the Supreme Court of Canada, and then it fell on my lap two months ago. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we now have the basin principle of good faith performance of contracts. Well, mm-hmm. there was not a good faith performance of the contract here. The opposite. According to the judge, according to the Court of Appeals majority, yet there's no remedy flowing from that. So what should the remedy be? Anyway, I've sought leave I haven't received the other side's response to our leave application. It's that recent. Mm. It will be imminent. And that's a case I find extraordinarily academically exciting. Right. Now, obviously, there's conflict in Canada. It seems like a national interest. So, Seems to be, but yeah. you get one out of 10 cases accepted civilly. Right. Unlike criminally, where you have a much <laughs> higher percentage or constitutionally. That's very true. What about, um, what about legislative change? I mean, obviously, we have a new government in place that seems very adamant to uh, be proactive with businesses and protection, and you've already alluded to the fact that you think there's some repeals coming forward. Is there something legislatively right now that you think is drastically imbalanced, whether it's on the employer or the employee side? That yes, you- the wind government's reforms, if I can call it that, are drastically imbalanced on the employee side. And Trudeau looks like he might be following in those footsteps mm-hmm. in terms of what they're talking about in Ottawa. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But he may have enough of his own problems right now. He may not want to continue pushing through left-wing legislation given the opposition he's finally getting to it. Right. Well, uh, Howard, it's been a real pleasure interviewing you today. I sure, really, well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, it. too. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Council. Once again, I want to thank LexisNexis for sponsoring us. 
If you want to learn more about employment law, please take a look at their eighth edition of Your Employment Questions Answered, Federal and Provincial Guidance by Annelie Legault and Matthew Curtis. For our listeners, LexisNexis is offering a book draw for this text. Simply fill out the form at lexisnexis.ca backslash employment book draw for a chance to win with the draw being held on October 12, 2008. Also, we now have a new feature on our podcast. Do you have a question you want one of our lawyers to answer on our podcast? Just visit our website, robishowlaw.ca backslash podcast question and fill out the form. You can ask us anything about criminal litigation, the practice of law, opinions on recent developments in the news or on criminal legislation, or anything else you might want us to answer. Just fill out the form and your question may be read and answered on our next episode of Off Council.